you have a Bible, uh, we are in John chapter 5, picking up uh, where we were two weeks ago before our mission weekend, and encourage you to uh, track with the message. You can look on the uh, overhead as well. There should be an outline in your bulletin you can track with, and the uh, printed notes are both exits. You can get a copy of those. I think they're pink cover today, and those notes as well as the audio files are on the church uh, website as well. In John 5, Jesus healed the man by the pool in the first 17 or 16 verses, and then um, since it was on the Sabbath, and he deliberately did it on the Sabbath, the Jews accused him of breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus uh, responded by asserting his deity, essentially. The Jews got the point and uh, were seeking to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was claiming uh, that he was equal with God. And as we saw last time, Jesus um, goes farther, really, and uh, sets forth his claims to deity So we're breaking in kind of in the middle of Jesus' um, sermon or uh, testimony to the Jewish leaders in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of life or out of death, I should say, into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. George Bernard Shaw certainly had it right when he made the uh, wry observation. The statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. You know, as you think about that fact, it is amazing that more people are not zealously trying to figure out what lies beyond the grave. How can we know that? Uh, how, How can we be prepared for the inevitable? I mean, it's going to happen. And yet the fact is, many people just kind of push that out of their minds. They develop a, quote, positive attitude, think, surely it'll be okay with me because I'm a basically good person. And they don't seek to find out the truth as Jesus proclaimed it. 
the evangelist George Whitfield once said that he saw a group of men riding, they were convicted criminals, they were riding in a cart on the way to the gallows where they would be hanged, and they were arguing about who got to sit where in the cart. You know, one of them wanted this seat. No, I want that seat. They were like a bunch of kids in the car on vacation bickering over who gets to sit where. No thought about the fact that in a few moments they would be in eternity. Now, in our text, as I said, Jesus is replying to the Jews who not only accused him of breaking the Sabbath, but also of claiming to be equal with God. And as I pointed out last time, if, if any one of the Jews had accused one of the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or any of the other prophets, and said, well, you're making yourself equal with God, those prophets would have torn their robes, fallen on their face, heaped dust on their head, and said, God forbid that I should ever even hint that I was equal with God. And yet... When they accuse Jesus of that, rather than backing off, he intensifies the claim. And as we saw in our last study, he claims to be equal with God in his nature in verses 17 and 18, equal with God in his works in verse 17, again in verse 19, equal with God in his love and in his knowledge in verse 20, equal with God in his sovereign power, in verse 21, equal with God in judgment in verse 22, and then, astoundingly, equal with God in worship, in honor, in verse 23. And now Jesus continues to hammer home these amazing claims of his own deity. In verse 24, he asserts that there are two categories of people. There are those who have eternal life, and there are those who are spiritually dead and under judgment. And the difference between those two groups, he says, is that those who have life have heard his, Jesus' words, and believed in the one who sent him, the Father in heaven, uh, whereas the latter group, the ones who do not have life, have not. Then he goes on in verses 25 and 26 to state that he inherently has the power to impart eternal life uh, to dead sinners. A remarkable claim. And then in verses 27 to 30, Jesus goes on and says that in the future, He will raise from the dead everyone who has ever lived, and He's going to judge them for all eternity. I mean, these are not claims that any created being could make as I pointed out last time, unless he's just loony, crazy. And not many are willing to go that far with Jesus. The other option is, of course, he is the Lord God in human flesh. So our text is screaming at us here uh, because death and judgment are certain. It is saying that since Jesus can impart life, eternal life, and since Jesus will judge all people, make sure that you are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Make doubly sure that you are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Eternity uh, depends on it. 
Now, before we work through the text, let me point out something that in verse 20, Jesus said that he was going to show them greater signs or greater works so that you will marvel. And then in verse 28, he tells the Jews, do not marvel that I said these things to you. Now, you wonder, well, wait a minute. Why does he say, I'm going to do these things so you can marvel? And then he turns around and says, now don't marvel. As I understand what's going on there, in verse 20, Jesus is giving an invitation to them and saying, if you process these miracles that I am doing properly, you will marvel in the sense that will lead you to saving faith. But down in verse 28, I think the Jews are scoffing at Jesus' claim to be able to judge all. And so he is warning them that they should not scoff. They should not marvel in that sense. And uh, so that's the tension between those two verses. Now, our text makes three points uh, this morning that I want to bring out. First of all, in verse 24, it is obvious that there are two groups of people, only two groups, those who are spiritually dead and those who have eternal life. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life the first group, and does not come into judgment. That's going to be the second group. But has passed out of death, that's where they were, into life. Now, clearly, when you're talking about dead and alive, you only got two categories. Well, maybe there's a third half alive, which some of you might qualify for this morning. I don't know. But um, you're really alive, technically, even if you're half alive, right? And so there's only dead and alive. That's the only two possibilities. And uh, what is true physically is true spiritually. There's no in-between, well, I, I sort of believe. No, you either believe in Jesus Christ and you have eternal life, or you are spiritually dead and under God's just judgment. And the point I want to make is there is no in-between category. All of you this morning are in one or the other category. Now, what makes the difference? Well, the difference is, Jesus says, those who have eternal life have heard his word and believed the one who sent Jesus, whereas those who are spiritually dead have not heard or believed. Now, let me kind of explain that, uh, some of the words there. First of all, when Jesus says they've heard his word... He's talking about all of his teaching, uh, everything that he uh, said in his message. It's the same thing as hearing God's word because Jesus said he only did what he saw the Father doing. He only spoke what he heard the Father speaking. So there's no disparity there. The word of Jesus is the word of God, and they are the same thing. Um, The Father also testified to his Son, as we have seen, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, in verse uh, chapter 4, we saw the Samaritan people testifying that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's why the Father sent him. Now, when he, Jesus talks about hearing his word, obviously he means more than hearing the decibels, the sound of his voice, because the Jewish 
people he was talking to heard in that sense, but rather uh, he is talking about accepting or submitting to what he is saying. Uh, In spite of witnessing all of the amazing miracles that Jesus did, capped off in the Gospel of John with raising Lazarus from the dead, these Jewish leaders opposed Jesus and they uh, disputed with him. They rejected his claim that God had sent him. In John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd and his sheep and all of that, he contrasts uh, with these unbelieving Jews. He says that his sheep hear his voice and follow him, and he gives them eternal life. And so to hear Jesus' word has the idea of hearing with faith, hearing with obedience so that you respond positively to Jesus It means that you believe what Jesus said, what he taught, who he is, and you submit to him as Lord. Now, in verse 24, Jesus adds that those who have eternal life also believe him who sent sent me. And that's a little bit of an unusual way to express things. As Leon Morris points out, it's more common to have a reference to believing in and then having Christ be the object of belief. But here it's those who believe the Father, Him who sent me. Uh, Leon Morris adds this. He says, All those who believe the Father, who really believe the Father, accept Christ. It's not possible to believe what the Father says and to turn away from the Son. The theme of this whole passage is the unity of the Father and the Son. You know, in uh, verse 24, Jesus then says, The one who hears his word and believes the one who sent him has eternal life. Now, up in verse 21, we saw that it's the Son who gives life to whomever he wishes. And that statement emphasizes his sovereignty in salvation, or what theologians would call the doctrine of election. And as I pointed out when we went over that verse, that doctrine is important because it's the only doctrine, the only teaching on that subject that gives all the glory to God for our salvation. See, if faith originates in me, because I'm smarter than the guy who doesn't believe, then I can take credit. But if God chose me, God worked in my heart, God saved me, then all I can do is say, praise God. It was of Him, not of me. That's why it's important. But then people get confused, and I've had a number of people ask me this question. Well, then, how can I know whether I'm one of the elect? And verse 24 tells you very plainly how you can know you're one of the elect. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? If you answer, well, yes... Well, the only people who believe are those whom God has chosen to believe. And so, yes, then you are one of the elect. And um, if you believe Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that God sent him to this earth to uh, die on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, all of those things are things that did not come from you. That came from God. And so, yes, if you believe those things, it is evidence that God has chosen you for salvation. Uh, 
Now here, the Lord wants those who believe in Him to have assurance of salvation. Uh, He says, notice, the one who believes has, not will have, has eternal life. He has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but, this is past tense, he has passed out of death and into life. It's a done deal. Um, That is in contrast to the Judaism of that day that thought that eternal life was something in the future alone. And Jesus is here saying eternal life is the present possession of those who believe in him. If you believed in Jesus, you have received that life that begins now and goes on forever with God in heaven and all of the promises that are connected with that. Uh, You have moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it is, Jesus says in verse 24, um, eternal life. If it's eternal life, it isn't temporary life, is it? If it's eternal life, then you got it. Or to put it another way, if you can lose it, then you don't have eternal life. You might have something, but it's not eternal life. Because if you have eternal life, you have it eternally. That's the very nature of the thing. And so, those who teach, you can lose your salvation when you sin, and then you get it back, and then you lose it. uh, I'm sorry, they're mixed up. When God gives eternal life, You have it, and it is your possession. And uh, he wants all of us, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, 1, to have the assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are in Christ Jesus through faith in him. Now, some of you may say, well, all right, but I don't feel like I have eternal life. Well, eternal life is in, is in part a feeling. I mean, assurance, I should say, is in part a feeling. But it's a feeling based on fact. The fact is, Christ died for your sins. You've trusted in Him as your Savior. You take the promise of God at His word. So it's based on that fact of who Christ is, what He came to do. You have eternal life, and the feeling follows based on that fact, and Jesus here underscores his words, you notice in verse 24, with truly, truly, he wants you to understand, I'm not making this up. This is the truth. Believe it. And as you believe it, the feelings will, in time, follow. I heard once about a man who came to the famous uh, evangelist D.L. Moody and said that he didn't feel saved. And Moody asked him, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man said, well, yeah. And he said, well, what made him safe, his feelings or the ark? You know, and it was obvious the ark is what made him safe from the flood. And uh, Moody's point was, of course, if we're in Christ, it's not your feelings that give you assurance. It's Christ. You're in him And he is the ark who protects us from the coming storm of judgment that God will bring on the world. And so our feelings rest on these absolutely truthful words of Jesus, and that's the basis for assurance of salvation. Now, 
Leon Morris makes one other point about verse 24 that I thought was really good. He said, that's not just a statement of fact, it's an invitation. And so before I leave verse 24, I want to invite you, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, to do so right this moment. Don't put it off, say, well, I'll think about it. You may not have time to think about it. You might get struck by a bus as you leave church, God forbid. But my point is, none of us know if we'll be waking up to the sunrise tomorrow. And so don't put it off. If you've never trusted Christ as your sin bearer, trust Him now. He's the only way. Then Jesus makes another point. The first point is that there are only these two categories of people, those who have eternal life, those who are under judgment. Secondly, Jesus makes the point that he is the only one powerful enough to impart eternal life to spiritually dead sinners. That's in verses 25 and 26. Uh, first, Verse 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Again, notice two verses in a row, truly, truly, and those aren't throwaway words. Jesus wants us to perk up our ears and go, whoa, this is important. This is something I need to hear. Um, <clears throat> that phrase, an hour uh, is coming and now is, ought to be familiar to you. He said that to the woman at the well regarding worship in spirit and truth. And uh, what he means by it is, it's a present reality, but there's more to come. And in the context here, what he means is, uh, right now I can speak and the dead will hear my voice and those who hear will live, but there's more to come. And the more to come is the cross, the resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the, the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, all these privileges that we now enjoy. Um, now is meant, though, that he could speak then in such a way that the dead would hear and live. And physically, he demonstrated that at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth, he spoke. Lazarus, dead four days in the tomb, heard Lazarus uh, with the command, Jesus gave the power, so Lazarus woke up, obeyed the command, and came forth. Now, only God has that kind of power to raise the dead by a voice. You know, you can invite any, any person on this planet to go over there to the Citizen Cemetery and start talking to the dead and see how many respond. Only God can do that. Because God is the author of life. Now, raising Lazarus was a sign that John wrote so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so it is a sign of what God does spiritually, uh, the, the power that Jesus has to raise the spiritually dead so that they receive eternal life. And I think... That is the main focus here in verses 25 and 26. Now, I can't imagine how amazed you and I would be. Here we are standing there with Mary and Martha, and they're weeping, and they're at the tomb. 
And their brother's been four days in the grave. He's starting to smell, as Martha points out, when Jesus tells him to roll the stone away from the tomb. And Jesus speaks, and this guy who's bound with grave clothes comes stumbling out, and Jesus says, take the grave clothes off of him. And there he is, restored whole. I think we all would just be standing there with our jaw down to our shoes going, whoa, whoa. But you know what? Every time the Lord speaks and gives eternal life to a dead sinner, it's a miracle on a par with, and I would argue even greater than, his raising the dead physically. You know, it's something man can't do. It is a God thing when somebody who loves sin and hates righteousness, God changes their hearts, so now they love God and they hate sin, and they rise up and follow Jesus. You know, Charles Wesley's great hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. That's the miracle of the new birth that Jesus claims he is able to give. Um, that is the power of God. Now, in verse 26, Jesus explains why he can impart spiritual life to the dead who hear his voice. He says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now, life is inherent in God. God spoke in creation and life, both plant and animal life and the crown of creation, man, as male and female, came into existence. And Jesus says, even so, the Father gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now, we need to think carefully about what that means. So, um, everybody wake up. Uh, this is not going to be easy, but we need to go over it, okay? Because theological error creeps in in these kinds of verses. Um, no less a theologian than John Calvin understood this, that God the Father granted this power to Jesus in his incarnation. But uh, D.A. Carson disputes that and points out that in John 1.4, John said concerning Jesus in his pre-incarnate state as the eternal word, in him was life, and the life was the light of the sons of men, and so on. Um, and so Carson says that this act of the Father granting life to the Son must be an act belonging to eternity of a peace with the eternal Father-Son relationship. <clears throat> now, it's important to see, Jesus doesn't say that life comes to people from the Father through Jesus as the channel to people. Rather, he claims that he inherently now has the same ability to impart life that the Father has. He is on a par with the Father and it's another claim, again, of Jesus sharing the Father's full deity. But, and here's where you have to be careful, at the same time, that verse clearly distinguishes the Father from the Son, and it shows that the Son is eternally subject to the Father in the hierarchy of the Trinity. There is a heresy, you may not recognize these names, but they're all three labeling the same heresy, 
It's sometimes called Sabellianism. Sometimes it's called Monarchianism and sometimes Modalism. And it denies the Trinity by teaching that there is no distinction of persons in the Trinity. But rather, at times, God manifests Himself as Father, at other times as the Son, and then still at other times as the Holy Spirit. And so it denies the Trinity, just these three modes of God expressing Himself. And uh, there is a church in town here, I believe, that teaches this heresy. It's the Oneness Pentecostal teaching. You'll hear people, the Jesus-only movement. And it's a heresy. They deny the Trinitarian nature of God. Early in church history, there was a great defender of the faith named Athanasius. He opposed Arius, who denied Jesus' deity. And Athanasius used verses like John 5.26 to prove that the Father is distinct from the Son in the Trinity. And you may have heard of the Athanasian Creed. And part of that creed puts it this way. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance or essence. So they don't confound the persons. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit and so on. They are distinct and yet they don't divide the essence. He is one God in His essence, in His substance. So, a little lesson there on theology, but you've got to get that to get verse 26 right and uh, be, be forewarned and forearmed on it because these false teachings still exist in our day. So, Jesus is teaching then in the first place that there are these two and only two groups of people. Those who have eternal life, those who are spiritually dead and under judgment. He's also teaching <clears throat> that he's the only one who is powerful enough to impart life to dead sinners. And then thirdly, Jesus goes on and teaches that he will be the one who raises all the dead of all ages, and then he judges them for all eternity. And uh, just as an aside, for Jesus' claims here in verses 27 to 30 to be true, he had to be raised bodily from the dead. He, he could not claim, someday I'm going to raise all, all the dead and judge them if he's still in the tomb. He was raised bodily from the dead, and our entire Christian faith, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, rests on the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, five truths here, and, and because of time, I just have to kind of rattle them off, so I'm not going to elaborate much. But first of all, the Father has given the Son the authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. That's verse 27. He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And He is explaining still verse 25 here. The Son of Man reference goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel is looking into heaven, and he said, I saw one like the Son of Man who came up to the Ancient of Days, and he received a kingdom, an everlasting dominion, and glory and a kingdom, so that all the peoples and nations might serve him. 
And as Jesus frequently asserted, he himself is uh, that Son of Man, God in human flesh. Now, he had to be God in order to give just judgment, as I pointed out last time, because only God knows every secret thought of your heart, and so only God can judge you fairly and, and accurately. If he's missing information, then he might make a wrong judgment. But the point, too, is Jesus must be man in order to judge because he can sympathize with our weaknesses, as Hebrews chapters uh, 2 and 4 make the point. And he knows by experience what it means then to be a human being. The second point here is that Jesus then will raise all people to face judgment. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And as I said, I take it that at this point, Jesus' hearers were scoffing at his claim to have life in himself and to be able to judge all people. And so Jesus warns them, don't scoff, don't marvel at this, because the day is going to come, and he adds another claim of his divine power, the day is going to come when I will give the command and every person who has ever lived in any culture, in any time, will come forth from the dead unto life. I mean, whether their bodies were drowned or burned or exploded in a bomb or rotted in the ground or eaten by scavenging animals or however they died, it does not matter. Jesus will speak, their bodies will be resurrected, and they will stand before God for judgment. Now, other scriptures distinguish that there will be two resurrections of the dead. First uh, Thessalonians 4 says, When Christ comes uh, with the shout, the dead in Christ will rise first, and they will come back with him to be reunited with those of us who still are alive. Uh, and those who are in Christ will not face judgment for condemnation, but Verses are very clear. We will be judged for our works, for rewards in heaven. The second resurrection, I understand, to occur at the end of the millennium, Revelation chapter 20, when the dead will rise and go before the great white throne and they, unbelievers, will be cast into the lake of fire, as Revelation 20 warns. But the point is, nobody's going to miss the final roll call. You know, you can't say, well, I was sleeping, I missed it. No, you will be awake. You will be there, front and center, standing before the Lord Jesus, either for rewards or for condemnation. His third point here is then that at the judgment, there are two and only two eternal destinies, either eternal life or eternal condemnation. Verse 29, the middle of the verse, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He doesn't say those who committed the evil deeds will be annihilated. That's an appealing doctrine emotionally to, to many. Even the late John Stott, I think, fell into that error before he passed on. Uh, but it's simply false. They will be raised for a resurrection of judgment. And uh, it's both the righteous and the wicked 
And either there is life beyond the grave for both groups or Jesus was clearly mistaken. Uh, he uh, teaches in Matthew 25:46 that the wicked will be raised for judgment. And he says, then they will go away into eternal punishment. And then in the next breath, he says, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now, he doesn't use the word eternal in two different ways in the same breath. So if eternal life is forever, eternal punishment is also forever. The fourth truth, then, is that the basis for judgment will be a person's deeds. Again, in verse 29, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Back in college, I've often wondered what happened to her. I had a good friend who was a Roman Catholic, and I would often <clears throat> talk to her about spiritual things because she was very open about that. And I finally persuaded her to buy a Bible and uh, read the Gospel of John and ask herself the question, how do you get eternal life? Because that's what John is all about. And one day she came up to me with a big smile on her face and said, I, I found out. And I said, you found out what? She said, I found out how to get eternal life. And I thought, praise the Lord. She got to John 3.16. And she said to me, uh, it's right here in John 5.29. It's by good deeds. And I thought, oh my goodness, she missed it. And so I sat her down and I just walked her through the Gospel of John. And I explained to her John 1.12. It is as many as who believe in Jesus who are the sons of God, the children of God. And uh, she had missed John 3.16. It says, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. And she had missed John 3.36. who said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And she had missed right here, verse 24. Whoever believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. Uh, she had missed all of that and focused on the works. Um, Leon Morris, I think, has a very good explanation of verse 29. He says this, Judgment, as always in Scripture, is on the basis of works. This does not mean that salvation is on the basis of good works, for this very gospel makes it plain over and over again that men enter into eternal life when they believe on Jesus Christ. But the lives they live test or form the test of the faith that they profess. This is the uniform testimony of Scripture. Salvation is by grace, and it is received through faith. Judgment is based on men's works. John Calvin comments on verse 29 this way. He says, For without the pardon which God grants to those who believe in Him, there never was a man in the world of whom we can say that he has lived well, nor is there even a single work that will be reckoned altogether good unless God pardon the sins which belong to it, for all are imperfect and corrupted. And then he goes on and, and uh, refutes the Roman Catholic error. Remember, at the Reformation, they were just coming out of this monolithic Catholic system that taught penance and and good deeds and so on would get you into heaven. And then he concludes in this way. And indeed, we do not deny that the faith which justifies us is accompanied by an earnest desire to live well and righteously. 
But we only maintain that our confidence cannot rest on anything else than on the mercy of God alone. So I hope you understand the point. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but the faith that saves is always accompanied by good works because it, God changes our hearts. And as a new creature in Christ, you can't live as you formerly lived. You hate the sin that you formerly loved. And you love righteousness that you formerly hated. That is the mark of all Christians. None of us are perfect and we're all subject to, to sin and to failing. But there's a change. There's a difference. And that difference is eternal life. And then finally, Jesus makes the point that his judgment will be just because he doesn't seek his own will but the will of the one who sent him. Verse 30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. He's just <clears throat> recapping what he has said in verse 19 and uh, in this whole discourse. He's one with the Father. I can do nothing of my own initiative as I hear from the Father, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. So, notice that he says there, uh, he doesn't say that I do not do anything on my own initiative. He says, I cannot do anything on my own initiative. It is impossible because he is one with the Father. So he can't act independently of the Father. What the Father says and does, Jesus says and does. They are one. Um, and then, uh, Jesus can be impartial in, and completely fair in judging because he is not seeking his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And God the Father is perfectly just and perfectly fair. But, you know, let me give you some advice, and I've given it to you before, but maybe you've forgotten. Never pray that God will be fair with you in the judgment. It's a bad prayer. Because if God is fair with you, you will go to hell. You, you have sinned against God's holy law tens of thousands of times, as so have I. We've all sinned. We're all guilty. And if God is perfectly fair, go straight to hell. Do not collect $200. You know, Do not go by and go. Uh, you, you're, you're doomed. The prayer is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful, God, through the blood of Jesus to cover all my sin through what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's the only prayer you should have. God, please, be merciful. Maybe you've heard the expression going first class on the Titanic. You know, it's kind of saying it's ridiculous to book a first class suite and enjoy all the luxury when you know the ship is going down. Well, you know, that applies to life. You're foolish if you're saying, I'm going to live for the good life now. And you ignore the fact you're a heartbeat away from eternity. You're a heartbeat away from facing God in judgment. Get in the lifeboat. <laughs> That's the point. There's time right now to get in the lifeboat. Trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and when the ship goes down, you know, you will be saved. 
And there's plenty of room, unlike the Titanic, there's plenty of room on God's lifeboat for everyone. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise. And that applies to you this morning. Jesus claims he can give eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. He claims he's going to raise all for judgment someday. Now, either Jesus is crazy or Jesus is God and he's going to make good on that, on that claim. I think you know the answer. So trust Jesus now. Get in the lifeboat now. And Jesus promises when you believe in him, you have eternal life and you will not come into judgment and you have passed out of death and into life. What a marvelous promise. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for these profound and, and uh, hope-giving words of Jesus. And we know that John didn't make them up. No man could have made them up. These are your words for us who were born in sin. And they give hope to every sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And we thank you for that hope that you give. We thank you for sending the Savior that he was willing to die on our behalf on the cross, that you raised him from the dead as a demonstration of your power and your approval of his death, and that there is solid evidence for his resurrection from the dead, as we will see in the Gospel of John, the apostolic witness to the risen Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that if any are here who have never trusted Christ, your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see him, that you would move in their hearts to quicken them from the dead, that they might rise and go forth and follow you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.